How do you scale a company while maintaining values? Welcome back to the show. This is B is for Business, where I, your host, John Jiggy Bison, sit down with entrepreneurs, founders, and inventors, those who shape our culture and industry. Thank you for listening. I welcome a very special guest to the show today, Mark McShirley. Mark began his career at an early age, knocking doors and asking to mow lawns in his early teens. In high school, he ran his first small company, staining decks with a friend and a few employees. Mark would then get into the world of sales and grow to be the go-to for issue resolution. Around that time, Mark was ready to start his own business, and he co-founded Roof Simple with his business partner, Marty. Since 2015, they have grown Roof Simple to be a highly reputable company within the Shenandoah Valley. It's a great episode, ladies and gentlemen. Sit back and enjoy. You make this rather snappy, won't you? I have some very heavy thinking to do before 10 o'clock. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks a lot, John. So I wanted to get started with uh, how you became an entrepreneur and also how you had the confidence to do so. Well, let's, let's see. I, my first venture was probably like a lot of other people's first venture. I did like lawn mowing, you know, knocked people's doors in, in Front Royal, you know, in, in the town where I grew up. And um you know, tried to mow some lawns. I was probably like 15, 16. Um, then I started what would be kind of my first real company where I employed other people was a deck staining and pressure washing company called the Stain Brothers. I started that with a friend um, and did that kind of through high school and part of college. Um, and then got into roofing actually because I had done some work for Pete Belleville and he hired me as a as a sales guy for his roofing company when I was like 19, and you know as is typical in that in, in and still is in our industry, I was a 1099 contractor, and so I also I had always had an interest in kind of like web design and programming and internet marketing. So I did that on the side as well. So I did some for his company, but then also. Um, just kind of on the side, not like a major money maker, but a nice little extra and some good experience. And then, I mean, just sort of the the over the real quick overview is then at, I was with him for about nine years, I think. Uh, super awesome guy, um, really generous and everything like that. And then um, started Roof Simple in 2015 with my business partner Marty, who you might you might also know him too. Yeah, definitely. Um... Marty's a great guy. So part of what gave you the confidence to just keep growing and growing was probably starting from an early age then. Um, I had a similar experience of just getting started working very young, like 13, 14, doing lawn mowing. And even then, just at that small scale, like having to talk to people and be like, hey, can I mow your lawn? I think just helps you get started and building confidence really early on. 
Yeah, I think start, starting early makes a pretty big difference, I think, because the other thing is you get, you realize that, you know, especially door knocking, which you know, <laughs> um, in, is still a major part of, of our business. And um, it's funny because it's, uh, I think it's kind of really awkward and scary for a lot of people. But if you if you start early on, you realize that most people are pretty nice people. I mean, you yeah, you run into people who are, you know, cuss you out of their property and stuff like that. And um, you know, kind of some crazy outlier stories, but for the most part, I mean, it does also gives you some kind of some faith in humanity. And, um, I also think it show like, I think part of starting with door knocking so early, it was just sort of like in your control, like you could, you could, it was something you could do to control, um, you know, your, your deal flow. And so it's like, oh, I can, I can, you know, I don't have any money for advertising. I don't, you know, obviously back then didn't even know how to do that um you know but i could go and knock on somebody's door and you know basically pitch them and see if they would you know take that sale and i think early on um get it you just get you know you got plenty of no's but you would also get positive feedback and then it was like oh wow this is doable and then you really start seeing the opportunity and you're like wow if i could mow their their neighbor's lawn you know and whatever you know i'd be making like 100 bucks a week or something you know um (laughs) back in the (laughs) early 2000s uh it was pretty awesome um so yeah I, i think i think it was that i I think I've always, looking back, I think I've always been a little contrarian. I didn't really think of myself that way. Um, But like, I guess if it seemed like if if I really felt it in my heart that it seemed to be true or something, then I I would go with it. I would, and uh, looking back, I'm sometimes surprised at (laughs) my brashness, but um, so I'm not sure exactly where that comes from. So this might inform the next question then. When you were getting started at any level, uh, were you a person who did a lot of research and like reading books about how to do things or more of a person like figure it out as you go, just teach yourself by experience? Uh, both. Um, I definitely have always been a big reader and early on I wasn't like, I, it was sort of like discovering business at an early age was sort of like this, like, um, well, like Evelyn Wall says, a door, low door through a garden wall where you're kind of like, whoa, I didn't even know this existed <laughs> and that you could do these things. And, um, and so I, I, um, you know, and the internet was just budding back then. So, you know, I'm 37. So like I was turning 14 in two, the year 2000. So like, um, you know, early days of the internet or, well, you know, sort of a maturing early days of the internet, you know? So, um, so there was a lot of, there was already a lot of stuff online and some of it was total crap. There's lots of scams and it was actually great. I was so poor because otherwise I would have fallen for some, <laughs> for some <laughs> scams that I just couldn't afford at the time. Um, but I remember like affiliate marketing, all these things. So I was, yeah, I was kind of like looking all around and, and it's funny because I had, I, you know, I think everybody at that time, you know, at that time, it's like, you're looking to Silicon Valley as people still do. Um, and I, but I, you know, looked around my own life here in the Valley, Shenandoah Valley and, um, realized, you know, like I don't, I don't have those skills. So I, I did learn some of those skills, like spent time learning, you know, some basic programming and web design and stuff like that. Um, but, but it's interesting how actually the physical, like, you know, the trades, um, and the physical uh, relational, um, way of, 
acquiring and keeping customers was actually ended up being kind of the, yeah, the way I, I've grown all my businesses. So one of the things I saw um, from you is when you're differentiating Roof Simple, um, you said you kind of looked at mom and pop businesses um, and you loved the caring aspect that you get from those type of businesses, but you wanted to combine that with systems and processes. How did you come to that approach? And I think it's likely informed by your interest towards relational and the physical aspects, um, how you got started with with door knocking. You wanted to keep all that that relationship building with the customer and then scale. Um, but do you want to talk more about coming to that approach? Yeah, I mean, I guess it. <laughs> I guess to me, it always just felt like the right thing to do. Mm. Like, um, and I and I guess I've been fortunate. Um, growing up my I feel like my dad was always a really good example of both and you know and holding the center and not like being an extremist and and um I think things like there there there's uh you know people can jump to sort of a side where it's like oh you know businesses shouldn't try and grow big and all this sort of stuff um and then on the other hand, it's like growth, 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 you know, for its own sake or for, you know, the power, honor, prestige, whatever that that might be. Um, but it just seemed like, well, why why couldn't we? It seems so obvious that obvious that a certain amount of scale and systems, you know, is a huge help and a benefit to the customer, actually, yeah. <laughs> you know, have, having having some, you know, but obviously it, it, it becomes a, a negative for the customer if the, if the relationship gets lost. Um, and so I, I feel like it just seemed, I don't know how else to say it other than it just seemed like the right thing to do. The natural way of doing it. Yeah. But I think also looking around, I was like, well, there doesn't seem to be an emphasis on trying to do that. So, I mean, there, there are people who, who were sort of doing it, but there wasn't a, sort of an articulated, realization of that's what we're trying to i mean some people i mean you you see it on some businesses they might have a tagline you know like big enough to help small enough to care or something like that um so i don't think i'm original in in feeling like that's the right approach um but um i just wasn't seeing a lot of that especially because sales is really interesting because sales is you know and a huge part of our company is built on sales and sales businesses can typically scale very, very quickly. And of course, the main weakness there is that you don't scale whatever actual service or product uh, with the same quality. Hmm. Um, and so like, you know, we've grown compared to most businesses relatively quickly, you know, often doing 100% growth in a year. But compared to others in our industry, we're certainly not the fastest growing. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely doing well. We're in the, in the top percentage probably, but um, we're not there's still a big gulf between kind of a more integrated approach and then making it a little more frictionless on the sales side and just pushing the, pushing the sales growth. Did your approach to teaching sales um, change from when you first got started to now? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, the interesting story is, is that, so I, I have to say that um, admit um, when I first started Roof Simple, the idea was actually to eliminate the salesperson, 
we were one of the first companies to have an online quoting service for roofing. So you could go to roofsimple.com and you could get a quote within 24 hours, you know, with aerial imaging and, and this sort of thing. And it was slick and snazzy and, and really low prices. Um, <clears throat> but the conversion rate was terrible. Um, and also, so here, here, here was something that was kind of an illustration of the problem. So, you know, getting an online pricing for something is awesome in certain industries or, you know, I love e-commerce, you know, for certain things. It's amazing. Um, but, but what ended up happening was um, uh, we had a friend who we, Marty and I had given a bid to, um, you know, it was great price. We're going to do great products, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then another company had come in and realized, uh, you know, it had actually gone to this on this guy's roof and inspected it. And there was uh, hail and wind damage. And, you know, they went through the insurance process and got it paid for. And so it was like, well, obviously this other company served his best and like our, our own friend's best interest was better served by this, this other company because they actually went and looked at the roof. And obviously insurance is a service you pay, pay for. And, um, you know, if there's legitimate damage, then it's, it's absolutely worth using. Um, and so, so that was just sort of like a wake up call of like, you know, even if, even if somebody was less slick, like we lost, like we did a little, you know, digging and kind of like went back and talked to people who we had sent quotes to and, and realized like the common refrain was like, oh yeah, well, like Bob came and like got in my attic for instance, or like got on my roof or like, so I just felt more comfortable because I felt like he knew what mm -hmm. my situation was. And of course within, you know, beneath those lines is there's a, there was a human, there was human contact. And, you know, if you're, especially if it's retail, you're out of pocket, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on a new roof. And so it's like, do you really, uh, you know, it's one thing even to buy a car online, which you can do that now, um, and just have it delivered, you know, but that's like a right. product, you know, and there's a brand and all this sort of stuff. But like, you know, a roof is, you know, it involves like eight to 10 people coming out to your house and, ripping stuff off and putting stuff on and dealing with weather and you know so there's there's so much more risk um you know if somebody botches it that's you know that can really suck and be really expensive so yeah that's interesting um and you just mentioned i don't think i answered your question though <laughs> that, that was the that was the initial um yeah because you'd asked me how, how yeah i guess how, how do you approach it changed. right yeah. how do you approach it now then yeah so i mean we've gone through um to be honest, we've just kind of gone through um, from starting, I think, through about 2020. Um, we really we did some things right early on, partly just without realizing it. Luck of the draw, uh, which is amazing and grateful for those blessings. Um, <laughs> but we also screwed up a lot too. Like we went through a phase where we sort of didn't believe in door knocking even. So like, even though both Marty and I had done door knocking to get the business going and actually Marty had been, even though I'd done door knocking in prior businesses, Marty actually did a lot of the early sales and door knocking retail actually. Um, and so even though that was kind of in the DNA, we kind of succumbed to this sort of malaise where it was like oh maybe we could be marketing driven and you know then nobody would have to knock doors and so we were looking at it as kind of this bad thing this negative thing that that like is you know and and i think it was basically because we were getting some feedback like that like hey I don't, you know I'd, I'd rather not have to knock doors you know from certain sales guys and it's like 
you know, it's funny how in business the the kind of the hard personal thing, like knocking a door, uh, is often the most important thing, right? Like mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't do the hard thing, it's not hard hard either. I mean, that's the irony. But if you don't do that thing that has a certain amount of friction, basically, there's more friction to knocking a door than just like having a lead pop up on your calendar. Um, and then, right. of course, there's also a big difference in pay between what that's worth, right? So if somebody who's willing to go knock doors can be paid much more than somebody who's just accepting a lead. Uh, but anyways, I, I think we did go, we, we did some, uh, some of these other companies that have been started around the time we were or, or after or even before, um, a lot of them had more aggressive sales DNA. Um, like there was definitely like a heyday of construction sales um kind of in the late 90s that kind of took kind of almost like boiler room like 80s sales tactics and applied it you know from wall street and applied it to construction and there's a whole dna of how that is all have split out and and everything um and um but we were kind of allergic to some of that culture because it's sort of like a wolf of wall street type culture but just you know implanted in construction um, right. and not always that bad, but you know, that's a, a little bit more of that old school vibe and, and we, we just didn't jive with it. And so when, but the problem was, is that I, I think we reached a crisis kind of in, in, uh, around 2020, not from COVID ironically, but from just like Marty and I, our own internal, like soul searching essentially of like, okay we are a sales business, you know, a sales driven business. I mean, that's obviously not the whole piece, but it's driven by sales, right? And especially door to door sales. And so it's like, you know, most of the books on, on this, they, they're very, they're often very useful, but they, they really do not have a whole, like a whole anthropology. They don't really understand what a person is or attempt to, um, either the salesperson or Mm -hmm. the customer, ironically. Um, and so it was really just the example of some of the guys who we had attracted who were doing well and just being like, wow, like there's this guy or this guy and we like them and our customers like them and they're also successful. Um, and so it's just kind of a little bit of more of like learning from our successes and standardizing on that. Um, and that really kind of took swing in 2021 and it's been transformative. I mean, I think we definitely went through some dark periods with our sales culture because we were almost kind of working against sales as a whole because we were allergic to just certain negative sales principles. Um, right. And yeah. So it was, yeah, it was, it's been a, it's been a huge ups and downs, but I, I think it's definitely a lot more solidified now um, and much more positive uh, and therefore more profitable too. I think, um, uh... It's interesting that you guys identified like that the person, the person concept um, has to be there. And I feel like that is ignored in a lot of sales, like recommendation. It's almost uh, the way it's talked about is almost formulaic. Like if you say these things and the process um, evolves this way, like therefore equals like sale. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I think you guys just came to learn that it's not that formulaic um, and that probably your best, mm-hmm. best salespeople were being the most personal. Um, that's a very interesting journey. I was just going to say a good salesperson. It's really interesting because a good salesperson does have to have the um, essentially, I guess the confidence to challenge 
the customer's assumptions. And I think this is what's hard because that can be done in sort of the sleazy um, and very disrespectful way, or it can be done in a very respectful and trusting way. Um, and that's really the difference. But it is interesting that persistence and the ability to sort of challenge assumptions, especially like, you know, in our industry, it's like not not every homeowner really understands, you know, the insurance process or how all that works or things like that. They might think it's a scam. You know, that used to be it's getting people are more educated now, but especially when we were starting, like, you know, people think it's a scam or that sort of thing. And so you mm-hmm. have to actually change somebody's mind right? Like about it. So you have to have the ability to challenge. But if you're basically an asshole about it, just trying to, you know, line your pockets, or if you're sleazy about it, um, you know, and that has negative repercussions. Yeah. So I don't know, it's, it's fascinating. You mentioned earlier that, um, like, unlike other products, having a roof takes, I mean, eight to 10 people coming to your house, and then several other people beyond that, and roofing in general, there's just so many different parties involved this from suppliers to contractors, the salespeople, the homeowner. Mm-hmm. How have you gone about managing relationships? Uh, and if a relationship starts to go negative, um, how do you approach that and try to bring it back? Yeah. So I think the, well, the first thing is obviously you want to avoid having problems, right? So I think most businesses get that. Um, and I think the first, the first, uh, sort of big picture attempt at avoiding a problem is kind of goes back to hiring, right? So like we, one thing we did that really helped, um, make the sales culture better and more aligned with our, our values was to articulate kind of, I mean, obviously like I'm, you know, like you, I'm a, a person of faith. Um, and so like, obviously you know, the ultimate values are all, you know, virtues and, and, and everything. But mm-hmm. I think it's helpful to have sort of a pragmatic emphasis in a business. So I don't think it's, it's bullshit to have sort of a values articulation for a business because each business kind of has its own DNA. And I think that's a good thing. There's sort of a diversity in how people are going to go about business. Um, and so we just decided to articulate kind of what, what was sort of in our hearts and, you know, Marty and mine and, and kind of, you know, obviously this is a business that we have to work in. So we want it to be one we want to work in with people we want to work with. So we identified family first, do the right thing and give a shit as our, our, we feel like we're blue collar so we can say shit, but, (laughs) but, um, uh, but, but identified those are the values by which we're going to make decisions. And obviously, you know, when we write it up, we have a little bit more, a little more detail or example, but, um, and you know, those aren't completely original or anything like that. Um, but it, it helps to just put it out there to say it. And then it also holds Marty and I accountable. Like there's nothing better than having, you know, one of the people on your team, throw your values back in your face. Um, and, (laughs) and, and, you know, hold the line. Um, but I think so, but I, by articulating values, you're able to, you know, hire and fire based on that. And then, um, you know, so really like, uh, like I've always said, the best thing I can do for my cu- customers is to hire a good person. Um, and so you, so we are hiring for a character and you don't really know people's character. So, I mean, the other thing is, it's like you're, and not everybody that we hire, you know, shares our same faith or anything like that. 
and so you're still but you still need that commonality they still need to end up holding you know sharing those values even mm-hmm. just in a pragmatic way so that you can work together and achieve a, a shared goal but um yeah so it starts with hiring and then um the processes um behind it you know like just your day-to-day processes you know just try you know just like really the the nitty-gritty of like how do you how do you do a good handoff between sales and production you know and those are constant tensions in any business that has sales and production um and so trying to trying to always make that better so really i think what it ultimately comes down to or the the heart of the question seems to me to be okay for everybody a certain amount of jobs are going to go well or decently well and then there's going to be the ones that you know shit hits the fan and it's bad um and how we've approached it so early on so it's interesting when i used to work for pete early on um i ended up kind of becoming a problem solver guy so like um there was like an older sales guy who had kind of completely botched a relationship with a customer and she was going on angie's list you know back in the day that was kind of when they were starting and becoming <laughs> big in northern virginia and just totally shat on us and it was it was it it, it was a lot of it was legitimate unfortunately um and so pete had me go and and smooth it over and it was a really good and formative experience and um she ended up uh very happy ended up moving and using us again for her her next roof um and she was a particular customer um to be fair to the sales guy but um that was a really formative experience for me because it was i mean it was at the point where they had you know literally stood on their front porch and said very unfortunate things to each other (laughs) so you know this is like you know a shouting match bad not just like uh, you know i have these problems with your service and and then um so then i i i kind of was default that guy uh and then i ended up as general manager with pete and then before i left and so then with roof simple that dna was we just the do the right thing even though we only really see we only really wrote down our values in, in i think it was in 2021 actually um i don't know when we disseminated them i didn't i sat on it for a little bit because i kind of want to you don't want to make up values uh, you mm-hmm. want to articulate something that's really at at the heart of who you are at your best, right? Obviously you don't always live up to them. That's why you need them there so that you can be reminded of them. Um, But something that Marty and I really very early on was just the do the right thing part. Part of what that really meant to us in the early days was obviously when you're just starting out, your reputation is just so fragile and important. And so you really need every job to go well. and uh and you need those referrals and all that sort of stuff and um so it was just sort of our default approach was like if somebody was unhappy or we made a mistake we don't i think what what happens for a lot of contractors and we had seen this was that you know you don't want to lose money um and you know you and also sometimes like the customer is wrong right so like they don't understand roofing. They think they're right, but they're actually wrong, right? The customer is definitely not always right, um, at least about the facts, right? Um, right. And so, so early on, we just kind of had this realization, like we're going to um, give them the benefit of the doubt. We're, even if we disagree with them, we're going to err on their side. Um, 
we're going to obviously try and educate them, but we're not going to, we're not going to take all this time hemming and hawing about, um, fixing the problem. Right. And especially if it's obvious and we're not going to try and, and negotiate to be like, well, would you accept less? Right. Like there's mm-hmm. also that temptation. Um, and especially if your back's against the wall, and this is again, where having a certain amount of scale makes this possible. Right. So like if you're, if you're a really small business, every thing, every customer matters so much that it can also be a negative sometimes um, where it's like, well, I, my family will lose its livelihood if you, you know, if I'm overly generous with you um, in resolving this situation. Um, and so having a little scale and things like that actually helps, helps with that. Um so the, the basic approach is really just straightforward. It's just like, okay, especially if it's obviously our fault, you just fix it, pay for it, whatever it is, right? Like if, if, we, if we left some nails that popped one of your tires, you, we just pay for your tires. Like, mm-hmm. like, like why, would, why would we quibble about this? Now, it goes even further, obviously, if it, if it sort of comes to blows, as it were, right? It's never literally. But like if, if, if they're just really vindictive and really feel like, you know, you have wronged them, cheated them, whatever, then, um, then you really have to, often you might have to send somebody else, um, like within the company who wasn't the person that they, uh, it's really interesting. You always have to give people an, a way to bow out gracefully. Otherwise you, you completely F it from the very beginning. (laughs) So like if you get really, if you get really defensive and don't give any benefit of the doubt, then they will almost never, ever turn around. They will never change their mind. They will never become positive because they will feel like a fool, right? So you always have to leave a road for them to not feel like a fool um, and to not lose face by changing their mind and becoming positive towards you. Interesting. Uh, that's a, I really like that concept, uh, giving a road for people to bow out gracefully or to change their mind because I feel like that's when... That's when someone ends the like ends the process. They're like if they don't feel like they have a path out, then it's like I'm not interested, and then relationship ends, or um, or they just stop communication. They like take more egregious steps um, if they don't feel like they have a path forward with you. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of like a path out and a path forward. Like you have to give people, yeah, room essentially. Um, and a lot of it is also just not taking it personally. Like one, it was an amazing experience we had or, uh, several years ago. I don't know, it may have been like 2018 or 2019. We had this customer who, so sales guy messed up. He, he didn't uh, realize there were skylights on the back of the roof. So totally his fault. But, um, and so we didn't replace them, right? When we did the roof. And usually if you leave skylights, it's really common for them to leak afterwards. Um, depending on what type of design it was. And these were a certain design where, um, you know, if you, if you leave them, they're likely to leak basically. And so it's best to replace them with the roof. Um, but of course it costs more to do that. Right. So these skylights leak, she calls in, obviously kind of freaking out. And, um, so we're like, no problem. We'll go back and whatever. And then we see that, uh, you know, oh, we didn't replace them. They're not, they're not, they're not new skylights or whatever. Um, but you know, she was super upset about it and it was the sales guy's fault. So we gave her new skylights for free. Um, but then she calls, uh, and is like, well, the leaking 
so the new ones weren't leaking. But the leaking from the previous ones, um, well, because they were in a bathroom. Um, mm-hmm. and she's like, well, the leaking the leaking is like causing mold. So we sent out a guy to to go do some drywall stuff and whatever. But basically, it ended up becoming this never-ending thing where it, basically what she was trying to do is get her bathroom remodeled. <laughs> and um, and a lot of the, the stuff was pre-existing. Um, and also there wasn't enough ventilation in the bathroom and things like that. So there's like a ton of stuff going on. It was kind of one of these complex things. Um, but she got to the point where she was just uh, verbally abusive to like every single person that I had interact with her. And, um, and I was quarterbacking it. So I was still talking to her and stuff like on the phone. Um, cause I was in the office. And, um, and so what I ended up doing is I just, I overnighted her, the money she had already paid, which was like most of it. Cause it was, I think it might've been an insurance job. And, um, I overnighted her, her all her money back and wrote her a letter and i was just like you know there's you know obviously you've got things going on in your life and you need this money more than we do um but i can't send any more like you have you deserve to trust the contractor you're working with and if you don't trust us we literally can't work with you um because it's miserable for everybody i send out there and i and i'm not gonna subject them to that abuse um and so she called me the next day crying um, uh, somewhat penitent, but just like, just, uh, just could not fathom how, how I didn't need the money so much that she could make me her slave. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but, but then, but then within the tears, then I'm also finding out like her dad's dying and all this stuff. And like, so it's really this hard, heartbreaking situation and she's just not dealing with it very well. Right. And so it's like the the other half of this is just forgiving your angry customers. Like they're often just backed into a corner in some other aspect of their life, and you know this this thing that your your interaction with them triggers them, and you know they go batshit. You know, and it's like, but it's understand. You know, it's like there there's a lot more context there. They're not necessarily these terrible people. It's like it's sad usually. It's usually sad situations, or like it's it's usually kind of sad because they're they're kind of the the biggest thing they have going on in their life right now is like quibbling over something with this roofing company, you know? Right. Right. Or it's an outlet for whatever they're going through. Exactly. Um, yeah. At that time. But you have to forgive them. I think that's the hardest thing too, is because there's sort of a justifiable defensiveness when you kind of come up against that unreasonableness, uh, you know, cause some people are just reasonable. They're like, yeah, you, uh, you, you know, you messed, you know, you, messed up my plants or something can you please fix that and then you do and they're like great thank mm-hmm. you so much that's all like and it's the, most people are actually that way they're, they're reasonable and we should be reasonable back towards them but when you come up against the unreasonableness i think you you really do have to forgive and not be defensive um and and that helps um kind of take the pressure out of the room um to kind of pre um proceed my next segment I, I choose it ahead of time and it tends that the conversation sometimes covers a lot of ground that the quote uh, might bring up. So mm-hmm. this is definitely the case with this quote. Um, but I want to hit it now because I mean, everything we're talking about plays right into this from how you treat people um, to hiring. Um, so the quote is from Stephen Covey, who is the author of 
seven habits of highly successful people. And the quote is, the ability to establish, grow, extend, and restore trust is the key professional and personal competency of our time. So, I mean, we've already covered a lot of that, um, but you want to just give some more thoughts on that, and uh, especially as it impacts how you hire and, and manage relationships like we've already been talking about. Yeah, so I think um, I think there's a couple of sides. Well, first of all, I agree. I mean, I think trust is, is essential. I think the other thing that's really interesting about trust um, is trust is efficient. Uh, I think that's often very underappreciated. Mm. Um, and so trust is definitely the right thing to do. So it's, it's sort of like you should you should be trustworthy. Um, but I think the, the flip side of that is that you, in order to build trust, you actually have to take the risk of trusting first. Um, and so hiring, for instance, is like, uh, you know, you could do background checks, you can do tests. Like we've gone through periods where we did, you know, like different like personality tests and all that sort of stuff, especially hiring for salespeople, right? Cause there's certain kind of a personality traits and skill sets you need to be good at it. And, um, most of that stuff ended up just not being a very good indicator of anything, um, which is fascinating to me because um, I've personally gotten good stuff out of some of these different, um, I've taken a bunch of them and they're kind of, some of them are actually kind of helpful. They help kind of like clarify some things for how you, how you approach your work, but um, they were not very good for hiring. Um, and, um, I, and, and, and when you start hiring when you're growing and you have, you know, quite a few people, I mean, we're not massive, massive, but I mean, let's see, like we have about 50 sales guys and um, it's probably another 50 people between project managers, office and support staff and stuff like that. So you're kind of in that, you know, around a hundred people total um, stage. Um, so obviously like we don't get it right every time and you trust people that don't deserve to be trusted. Um, and um, and obviously, hopefully, they don't do too much collateral damage, especially to a customer um, before they're before they're out. But I think it's amazing to me how many people um, like we don't have any formal like <laughs> it's kind of weird to say like uh, sort of second chance approach. But it is really fascinating to me how people, if you believe in them and trust them now you have to do it with clarity right like say these are the values we're aiming towards right <laughs> um like it's not like i'm gonna accept you being shitty and untrustworthy but if right. you, but if you will be trustworthy for me i'm gonna i'm gonna trust that you're gonna be trustworthy for me and for our relationship um it's amazing how often it just comes true and and people actually live up to it and um and even if, you know, and even if they slip here and there, um, as we all do, because we're people and human and original sin and all that great stuff. Um, I think if you have, if you lean that way, if you sort of lean into the trust um, and you're also showing people that you depend on them. I mean, you know, I obviously depend on people being trustworthy in my business. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's a dangerous risk <laughs> for me. Um and um but yeah I, I think it's two-sided i don't I, I think you have to i think if you want to be trusted you have to begin by trusting them and i think 
um, it always amazes me when we go through, whenever we go through a lot of growth, like this past year, we went through a lot of growth. It always amazes me how much trust is placed in Marty and I sometimes, even when it's like the, the, the person who's trusting feels either hurt or um, like things are not going well. Um, but there's sort of like a person level trust, like even if they disagree with how you're doing something, um, you know, it's real, it's a real gift if there's at, at the very least some kind of person level trust. Um, so yeah, I mean, trust is official, like trust saves, say, uh, yeah, I, uh, it's just, um, you, you can't do without it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know, I'm a 50, 50 partner with Marty and, um, you know, when people ask me, I'll, I'll sometimes get asked about partnerships, like whether people should be, you know, do a partnership or not. And, um, you know, I think what's interesting is, is that, um, I feel like it's like marriage. It's like, if you don't believe in it and you're not willing to work at it and forgive and all these sort of things, then, then, um, then it won't work at all and it will be really nasty and it will go bad. And, you know, especially if there's money on the line and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I mean at every, at every point, but, but that trust being able to have that trust though is so much more efficient, even though it exposes you, you know? So like Marty or I, because we're 50, 50 partners and trust each other and everything, you know, we, either one of us could completely screw the other. Um, mm-hmm. Just like in marriage, you know, you, you're, you're, you're completely exposed in a sense. And, um, but it's so much more efficient and so much more pleasant than if we were like constantly suspicious of each other and had a legal agreement for every little tiny thing we did. And I mean, it'd be miserable. Um, you know, it wouldn't right, be worth right. it, honestly. <laughs> in terms of like the people you hire, there has to be trust there. And then with Marty, there has to be trust, but to focus in on hiring when you, have good people you've hired good people you've established trust you guys seem to have good retention of people have you had specific tactics to achieve that um or do you think establishing the baseline of trust just naturally you know keeps people engaged and satisfied um being there um and therefore people don't move on as quickly yeah i think it has something to do with trust i also i mean we're we're not overly intentional about it in the sense that it's not the main goal um like retention itself um i think it's just more like the so especially retention of salespeople because that's actually kind of an unusual thing um salespeople are are notorious for moving around to greener pastures at all times right, right. so some of it's very pragmatic like the commission split is top of the line um I don't think there's a better one that I know of. Um, I mean, maybe, you know, or, or, or some new company could start one. Um, but they would also, it's on the verge of irresponsibility to go beyond that, I would think, for most businesses. So I think setting that um, makes a big difference. So that's kind of very pragmatic. It's just kind of like, well, if I have to put an amount roughly the same amount of work to acquire a client, it's better to be paid more for it. Um on the sales side. And then I think the other thing is, is that, um, by articulating the values, like the family first values. So what's really interesting about salespeople is that it's, 
Well, it's always a dance and we're always working on it because there's sort of two sides of the coin. Like salespeople need a certain, to thrive, they need a certain amount of freedom. Like they need, a, they need to be free to prudentially pursue the end that you set for them, how they see best. Um, but at the same time, they also need kind of a lot of like social support um, and, and also some hard lines um, so that they don't just get lazy and stuff. So, um, but I think that like, like, so we have minimum, you know, uh, minimum expectations and things like that, but they're a lot lower than, than what's typically out there. Um, and part of that, so that you can kind of have ups and downs, um, and that hopefully your downs don't kind of drop below that or not often. Um, but mm-hmm. I think oftentimes there's this spirit of maximization, um, in business. And I think that's very unhelpful oftentimes. Like you can't, you can maximize systems, you can maximize resources oftentimes, but you really can't maximize a person. Um, and again, that just comes back to like, what is a person? Um, and uh, you can't maximize them. So like, you know, like let's say your best sales guy sells, you know, a certain amount of jobs or a certain volume dollar one month, like let's say their best month is, you know, just this amazing month, right? Um, to try and be like, oh, that's the new standard, you know, so 12 months out of the year, we're going to get all our people to do this much, right? Um, is total lunacy. And and even if people are, even if a lot of businesses or sales managers aren't that uh, nakedly obvious about it, there is actually sort of this subconscious assumption that there is this possibility of is this utopia where salespeople all perform consistently super high every single every single month, um, and and that's just not how it is. And so, I mean, it's sort of like Warren Buffett talks about: is it. like it, you have to have consistent effort, but returns are lumpy. So, um, but mm-hmm. the, you know, especially for lifestyle, like a lot of people who are in sales are doing it. Like it's a very conscious lifestyle choice. You're, you're choosing not to work in an office. You're choosing not nine to five, um, you know, and those are perfectly fine things. But if you're a salesperson, that's, it, you're looking for specifically not that typically. Um, and you, you're looking for a certain amount of flexibility. Um, and so that's where like the family first thing really hits home is that um, when we're thinking about, you know, obviously like any other business owner, I want to improve sales and have more sales, right? That's the lifeblood of the company. Um, So of course, in a sense, I want to maximize sales, but I think maximizing sales is different from maximizing a salesperson. So part of that is, well, you can hire more salespeople, you can offer different incentives, you can support the lifestyle goals they have uh, to help motivate them. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, as far as retention goes, I think a lot of it just comes down to the pay is good. We try and be, um, hold people accountable, you know, to the, to the, to the minimum, but at the same time, we also try and be out of their way and not overly, um, you know, overly burdensome. Um, and, um, so they can, you know, have a family focused lifestyle and, I think for the people that stay, that's definitely, I think, a, a big part of it. And then also their coworkers. Um, again, I think sales is interesting because you can kind of have a, 
the traditional way of doing it is a little bit more, um, well, because sales is a meritocracy in a lot of ways, but there can be sort of a, you know, sort of an ego driven, right? like a lot of our top sales guys, you wouldn't know it. Like if you're just like walking around the office or saw the car they're driving, you wouldn't necessarily (laughs) know that they're like doing really well um, and kind of a big deal. Um, There's not a lot of swaggering, I guess. Like it's just way more like chill. It's just chill. Like, like obviously we celebrate people who are winning because that's awesome and and they deserve it. Um, but it's a lot more relaxed, I think. I guess I would say relaxed. We're pretty relaxed. <laughs> and I think people who stay really like that. Yeah, it's giving the healthy balance of, I mean, what it sounds like from what you're saying is it's all a healthy balance of these people are salespeople because they want to be independent, but then you're also giving them structure, giving them a good team, giving them support where needed. And then in terms of their environment, you're encouraging success, but also not like making it a backstabbing environment. So, um, and I like the concept of not trying to maximize the person. I think in a lot of business, there's the idea of like, how many hours can we get out of this person? Or it's all very metrics focused, um, rather than effort focused. Um, so that, that distinction is really good. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like a in it, there's sort of a trend or has been at least recently of like, oh, we we do it by the numbers, we run it by the numbers, like that's like um, you know good on me, that's back padding, you know, like running by the numbers, um, and numbers are obviously essential to business, um, and I think it's it's worthwhile to understand like, you know, have have working numbers for like what certain roles can achieve and what time frames and you know that's sort of pragmatic basic responsible business you know stuff but i think that where it gets really toxic is where it run you you start running people by the numbers instead of letting number letting people run the numbers <laughs> you know or like you shouldn't maximize people but you can have people who maximize resources um and i think mm-hmm. that's why like human human resources is like toxic honestly like i mean <laughs> we don't necessarily use a different name for it, but I mean, but the underlying idea of people as a resource, um, if you really think about what that means is like, I mean, in a sense, there's a, there's a a way in which people are resources, obviously. Right. You know, but, um, but, uh, but not in this way of resources are expended, whereas you don't want to obviously expend a a human person that works for you. No, absolutely. And so, yeah, so I think, I think there's there you know uh, a, a person is an end in themselves, um, and and you have to respect that so that obviously they have their dignity. And I I think um, I think it's very basic. I, I I don't you know I don't even know that we get it right all the time, but that at least we're conscious of it and and attempting to um, where we see stuff crop up, you know. Um, but I do think people get obsessed, yeah, by the, by the numbers, and it's like, and the uh, the numbers are amazingly often will lead you astray because numbers are based on all kinds of assumptions. Um, they're always based on assumptions, and they're always based on whatever is most measurable, uh, and what is measurable and what is important are not often commensurate. Um, so, it's dangerous actually, oftentimes, to run things too much by the numbers. Or only the numbers, I should say. The numbers are very useful. Right. They do tell a story. Um, it'd be irresponsible not to have them. But I think, um, yeah, always be suspicious of the assumptions underlying them. Yeah, that's a good principle. 
Well, I know I've picked your brain for a good bit here, so I want to move on to the final question, which is, what would your advice be for a person who believes they have a vision for a company or product? What should their first step be? Oh, that's a good question. It's probably going to be a little different depending on what kind of business it is. I think if they're if they haven't made steps to put it out into the world yet, I think that's always the first thing. And I think there's plenty. I, I've definitely known and met, seen people who have ideas, often good ideas, um, and they sort of keep them safe um, by not really exposing them by, you know, essentially by not actually doing something with it, not taking any risk. Um, and risk is tricky because, um, well, business like life itself is a risk. Acting out into an unknown future is a risk, right? And that's that's a risk whether you're in business or not. Um, but I think risks are, yeah, there's sort of two sides. So like a, there's two sides to risk. You need to you need to move into the future. You need to buy, and by that I mean not like move into some technological utopia or some weird, but I mean literally like you have to move into the unknown by taking, you, you take action and move into the next day essentially, right? And so I think if you haven't actually taken action and put anything at risk um, to do that, then that's the first thing you need to do. And that could be a million different things. So I wouldn't necessarily know what that would be for a particular person. Um, if that's not the problem, I think the other problem, the reverse problem can be not understanding what business risk really is. So like Marty and I, I think, think inside our minds that, that the sort of decisions we make are really conservative, right? So we're like, okay, if we buy a piece of real estate or if we like go into a new market, we have like 10, 10 alternatives to how this could all go well right? Like, it's like, okay, well, even if we did this, this would still be good or, or whatever. It wouldn't kill us. Like, like we're, we think we're being really conservative, right? Um, so I would say the, the entrepreneur should think that they're being conservative and responsible, but to the outside, it often looks like crazy risk, mm-hmm. um, potentially, uh, especially depending on what it is or how well understood it is, right? So I think risk for risk's sake, just like growth for growth, anything for its own sake that's not God <laughs> is a mistake. Um, so like you need to take risks, calculated risks, um, and and act out into the, into the future, um, <laughs> into that unknown. Um, but you shouldn't do it without some caution and consideration. Uh, but I think there's the movement. I think doing, I can be, actually, it's interesting. So in, in our partnership, Marty is definitely that person who will do it and figure it out. I'm a little bit that way, but I'm definitely more over analytical where I'll like try and protect the baby for too long and not let it grow up. Right. Um, and so having that balance has been really crucial for us um, and appreciating that, um, you know, you just have to do something at the end of the day and it and it's always going to be imperfect i mean that's the weird thing about business is there's no there's no perfect um you really need to try and make it good but you know we're fallen human beings in a fallen world trying to get some stuff done it is never ever nothing about business ever in any way is perfect um and it's really important i think to remember that because i think perfection is truly the enemy of the good in this world like perfection will be in the next world but um we should try and make our businesses positively good um and always be aiming that way but every every everything you do every decision you make you know has trade-offs and 
all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, you just got to go do something and you've got a course correct and um, yeah, aim to aim to do it well. I think that idea of risk is really important. Um, I think a lot of people perceive risk uh, from entrepreneurs as, as like you're saying, like dangerous. Um, whereas like in your mind, be conservative about it, um, but you have to, it requires action. Um, and like you won't ever see results without action. So taking the first step, whatever it may be, uh, is important to just getting the ball rolling. Um, and I, I think I personally found that once you do take action, then the natural, it, it just naturally evolves once you kind of put something out there. Um, so I think it's really good advice. And I want to thank you for coming on today, Mark. I uh, really appreciate your time um, and your insights. Yeah, no problem. Nice to catch up. Um, thank you very much. If you'd like to connect with Mark, you can do so at Mark McShirley on LinkedIn or check out Roof Simple at RoofSimple.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, consider leaving us a rating and sharing it with a friend. You can connect with us on socials at B is for Business Show on Instagram and B is for Business on LinkedIn, X, and Facebook. If you know of someone you think would be great on the podcast, reach out to me, let me know. I'd love to have them on, have a conversation, and share their journey with others. As always, have a great Monday, everyone.
Thanks for listening to B is for Business. Intro music is by The Revolution. Outro music is by Reveal. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. B is for Business is a trademark of Bison LLC. Remember to like, subscribe, and share B is for Business across all platforms. Thank you.